Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPM podcast on coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, host of Shorewords, and each month I'll be talking with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that inspired their chosen paths. Today, it's my great pleasure to talk with Gary Griggs about his career, his writing, and some of his favorite coastal books. But first, I'll take a short pause to introduce our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Gary, you're no stranger to most of the ASPN audience. Probably a quarter to a third have either been students of yours or have colleagues who are students of yours. And you've published, to my count, 27 articles now in Shore and Beach alone. Wow. <laughs> Two book reviews and one book cover. So it's quite a great accomplishment. Um, your short bio is that you received a BA in geoscience from the University of Santa Barbara, and then three years later, you got your PhD in oceanography at the Oregon State University. You were looking at some of the early sediment cores in the Cascadia subduction zone area. And then uh, from graduate school, you got an offer that you accepted to come teach at UCSC, University of Santa Cruz. And somewhere along the line, you became a distinguished professor of earth sciences (laughs) at UC Santa Cruz. So to me, you seem to be like the epitome of a Renaissance scholar. You're doing field work, you're teaching, you've got classes, you've got lecturing, you mentor students, you're writing, you're possibly still surfing? A little bit. Good. <laughs> but you're also involved with your community. And it seems like you do all of this with the same calm demeanor as you're taking the delay in this interview. So thank you. So some of this probably comes naturally to you. Some takes work. But when did you know that the coast and UC Santa Cruz would be the constants in your life? Yeah. Well, there's this funny story I'll make brief, but it has to do with books. Good. Um, as a kid, uh, my dad was a high school teacher in Southern California. When he finished teaching every summer, we'd look forward to this camping trip up the coast, you know, Oregon, Washington, California. And uh, the first night from Southern California, we'd always stay in Berkeley. And my dad had been a student there graduating in 1938, but his college roommate ended up getting a PhD in geography and staying on the faculty there for 40, 45 years. He was quite well known, a guy named Jim Parsons. And they had this wonderful house in the Berkeley Hills with lofts and books and things he'd traveled all over the world and collected. And he always would tell us stories and wonderful adventures. I think he made them up, but it was great. And I knew he had a doctor's degree because he was a professor. So I asked my dad once, and I was probably 10 or 11. I thought, wow, this would be a great profession. So I asked my dad what Jim had to do to get a doctor's degree. 
And my dad said, oh, he had to write a book, which a thesis is a book. And I thought at 10 or 11 years old, that was sort of way off of anything I could ever achieve. So I kind of checked the <clears throat> idea of being a professor off of my list of future professions. And I'm just finishing up my 12th book. So it was, uh, I, I, I think my dad was being honest, not discouraging, but um, it was not necessarily a dream to become a professor. And as I finished up at Oregon State, most people in geological oceanography were going into offshore oil. And it was sort of ironic that I had this all set to make a, then an interview with Humble, which now became ExxonMobil, I guess. It was all set to get a plane ticket to Houston that could go for this in-depth interview, give a talk. And the professor who had been sort of a guiding light at UC Santa Barbara, who had come to start a graduate program, Aaron Waters, had just been invited to come to Santa Cruz, which was just opening to start a new earth science program. He'd been here a year, I think. And he called and said, you know, I think we may have a position for an oceanographer. And that day, my course changed. <laughs> and I ended up coming down, getting hired. And that was, you know, 51 years ago. But it, in retrospect, I'd, I'd never taught a class. I'd never been to TA. So I walked into my first oceanography class here in the winter of 1969 with 250 long-haired, wild, you know, radical students from the 60s, and I uh, I had a suit and a tie on. <laughs> and, you know, they were all in tie-dye, and they had dogs and long hair. It was, you know, Oregon State is a, anyway, sort of a pretty standard, you know, Pac-8 fraternities, sororities, sports, and we had none of that. And all of a sudden, I'm in this very liberal, progressive institution, which was fine for me coming from, from Southern California. Santa Barbara, but it was this wonderful decision. And as I look back and think about, wow, you know, I could have done any of a hundred other things, but uh, the reason I think I'm still here, one of the pioneer factors sort of from the first several years is because it was a perfect opportunity for me in combining geological science as my undergraduate with oceanography, and then I minored in civil engineering. Everything sort of came to the coastal zone. And so I mean, in some ways it's a straightforward story, but in other ways, there's so many places where I could have done, taken another turn in my life would have been totally different. So I'm, I'm sort of, I feel very fortunate to have had all those things work out. Yeah. Even from the discouragement of that I would never write a book. <laughs> <laughs> so you write a lot about the coast. You've written a lot about the coast for most of your career. Um, a lot of things are the same. Those physical laws are still the same, but it seems like everything else has changed. Right. What What do you think has been the biggest changes, for good or for bad? I think what has clearly happened and is still happening is um, the coastal zone is where many people want to live. I mean, if you look at California, our coastal counties make up some small percent of the area, but 68% of the population and most of the gross domestic project, most of the Job. So um, as people have migrated to the coast, I think the issues that weren't apparent, and there's this interesting, uh, now that we've understood climate change and El Nino's and Pacific decadal oscillation cycles, the period from about 1945 to 1978 was a calm, not so stormy uh, cycle. And that's exactly when California's population exploded. So people subdivided the cliffs and the bluffs and the dunes at a time when the climate was 
pretty reasonable. So I think a change has been in 78, we flipped to a first bid El Nino, then 82, 83, and 97, 98, and then we went through another calm, cool period. Now we're back into a warmer, stormier period. So I think that's been one big issue is a realization that climate change is along the coast. And what may seem reasonable at one time, all of a sudden, we're doing a paper now on sort of the called the hardening of the coast or sort of the change. Things are changing. <laughs> These permits, and we kind of track as the commission has, you know, the number of miles armored in the 70s versus what it is today. And today, about 14% of the whole coast is armored. But for Southern California, before Southern California counties, it's 38%. So, and now we're kind of putting the brakes on that and say, wait a minute, we're not going to do that anymore. And that has big effects on unless you were built before the Coastal Act. <laughs> I think the other is the whole climate change sea level rise issue, which wasn't that we were ignorant, it just wasn't sort of as obvious as it is today with King Tide. So that seems to sort of be a sort of an umbrella over everything else now. You know, we didn't look 20 years into the future or 30 years into the future. Now, you know, those projections are it's concave up. How high by what period is affecting virtually everything on the coast. So I think that's been another big issue. Um, and those are the two I see, the sort of climate change, sea level rise, and our understanding of Pacific decadal oscillations and El Nino's. And it's those short-term cycles that are the ones that have really created the damage. A few millimeters now isn't a big deal, but in the long run, those are additive. Um, and I think just with the and the Coastal Mission came into being not long after I came here and started working, but I think that definitely changed our overall sort of process of what we do along the coast. And, and there's some considerations now that are weighing in that everybody has to kind of figure out how to deal with. Mm -hmm. And so, population keeps going up, so we yeah. have more people, but the amount of coastline doesn't go up. <laughs> not at all, unfortunately. <laughs> So you mentioned you've written 12 books. I know many, many articles and science papers and all of that. So I was watching a movie recently where there was this sort of social gathering scene and this fictitious character sort of in the vein of Tom Clancy was saying he didn't believe in um, writer's block. And actually he said something, I don't even consider the possibility. If you think about it, it might happen. <laughs> That's a direct quote from Tom Clancy, but how about you? I mean, what's your writing process? I'm not going to ask this of many people, but you've yeah. got so much of a, of a work that you've done. Do you just force yourself to sit down every day and write? Or? That's a good question. Um, I've also been writing these um, bi-weekly newspaper columns for oh, wow. almost 11 years. There's, I just finished my 282nd column. And... I've actually been jointly sharing those every other week with Dan Hayfley, who started Save Our Shores and then the head of the O'Neill Sea Odyssey program. He writes on a more, a little more conservation environmental and I tried to do science. And the first one I wrote, realizing that it was gonna be in the newspaper or your friends and mm -hmm. people read it, versus an article in Shore and Beach, which really should be more, well, be more pressure because those are your colleagues. And I had my wife read it and I had our public information officer read it and they made a few things. And, and then the next time I sent it to our local 
public information officer on campus. He said, Gary, I don't need to read these. You know what you're doing. But I thought I could probably find enough to write about for six months. And 11 out, years ago? 11 years ago. <laughs> and I think for those articles, there's so much going on. I mean, every time we turn around, there's, you know, the went up the ocean for plastic. Okay, that project didn't work. We've got the, you know, the BP horizon blowout or the newest stuff on sea level or whaling in the bay or fisheries that every time I turn, I mean, I've not duplicated articles, but I've written a lot of history. Those are kind of fun because they're about six to 700 words. And I find I turned it on Thursday night for Sunday. As soon as my partner's article comes out on Sunday, I start thinking about the next article. Monday or Tuesday, I rough it out and I look at it again. We write it on Wednesday. By Thursday, it's done. So those are kind of fun. Um, books, boy, I don't have a writer's block and I tend to think about things a long time before I finally do it. So I'm I'm already, once this, well, I did a, a combination, well, the first six years of my newspaper columns were put out, yeah. and I just put together the next four years. That was easy because we're just trying to work with InDesign, which is a challenge. Um, those are easy because you don't have to write them all over again. But a new book is like sort of a combination of things I think about a lot long enough that I know what I want to do, but I don't really write outlines. I don't really have a, a method I can see, okay, these, this new book on sort of natural disaster history, stuff I've been looking at for 50 years, so I've got files on earthquakes and floods. And I mean, you do some research, but it seems to kind of flow pretty well. And I don't try to make it perfect the first time, but I probably go back through it a number of times. And I think now I'm up to, I don't know, 190 articles published and those are different because you've been doing research, you've been thinking about things, and it's sort of finite. It's five thousand words. I'm really big on illustrations, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I sometimes think about, well, you know, the picture of say the apartments on the cliffs in Pacific. That's a whole story, and once you have that picture in mind, I kind of think, okay, what's the story, the message around that? Um, but I've also gotten much more interested in sort of science communication. One of the things I've tried to get into my graduate students is, you know, if you can't communicate clearly what you're doing, then it's never going to be read or never going to be understood. So um, that, to me, is really important. That's what these newspaper articles are really about, is anybody in the city should be able to read that and understand it. And I find we have this local paper that's getting smaller and smaller because it's an out-of-town owner and they're cutting budgets. But the number of people who I wouldn't even know would have read my writing say, oh, that's the best part of the paper. That's the part I look forward to. So it, I think getting a little bit of feedback every once in a while um, really helps you say, this is worth doing. I'll keep doing it. It doesn't seem like work, but by the end of a whole book, you realize, wow, that took, <laughs> yeah. that took a while. Couple hours each article, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, half a day each article, and suddenly right. you've got a yeah. yeah. And, and then I did a book recently with um, a friend, Kim Steinhardt, yes. who's a yeah. former administrative law judge, and it's a much more personal thing. That was kind of fun because we didn't have to feel like you had to cover every aspect of something. But he had one on whale watching, and on sea otters, and we both did one on growing up on the coast and. Those things in some ways are a lot easier, like writing your biography or something, I guess, than making sure you 
like living with the changing California coast was we've got to cover every county and we've got to, you know, I had Charles Lester mm-hmm. come in and do a chapter and people that I kind of talked into doing sections. That was, um, but you want to make sure you covered the whole state. It wasn't like, well, I think I'll write about this for a while. And <laughs> so it's been fun, but I, d- I never really saw it as a, as a writer's block, I guess. Good. And to think at one time I never thought I'd write a book and then I failed the English test and I had to take subject A and <laughs> college. You know, you look back and um, the amount of writing I'd done. The first the first publication I had, I, well, I did a handful in graduate school, was from these deep sea cores off of Oregon mm-hmm. Washington. And I realized how little I'd written because I submitted this manuscript and it went to um, Deep Sea Research and Oceanographic Abstract, a pretty high quality journal. And I had two of my faculty advisors as co-authors and they were both really young and hadn't written much. And the editor, Mary Sears, who was sort of one of these classic old, we we had no computers. No. (laughs) So it was a hard copy manuscript. And it was about these cores, which were these rhythmic turbidity current deposits, but in those was bioturbation or these burrows. And in fact, we could correlate the depth and in density of those over about 100 miles, which is really sort of an interesting thing. Why should the, because they were different from layer to layer, whether it was time between turbidity current deposits or recolonization of these benthic burrowing organisms, but I'd use the word burrows probably hundred times in that article <laughs> and she got back and said this paper is is very interesting but it has all the signs of immature writing <laughs> and she'd Ooh. taken a red pencil and circled the word burrows and as I read it I went oh my god <laughs> so that was sort of a wake-up call but that stuck with me forever so I tried and never use the same word twice in one sentence or sentences and, and learned to use other words and now with online thesauruses and stuff, but when I see students writing them, write like that, I, I, I want to use the same words. This is a sign of immature writing. No. So, so those are little things along the way that you realize. And so different now with computer and word processing versus. So you mentioned the edge, you didn't mention it by name, but you right. mentioned it, that you worked together. And then the coast and crisis, those both came out at about the same time. Did, yeah. And it seems like they're geared toward very different audiences. How right. did you decide to do them both together? And then what audiences do you want to read each? I, well, the Coast and Crisis book, I think um, um, I've done a fair amount of traveling around the world. And I noticed, well, there's a lot of other issues out there that I don't, we don't cover when we, I, deal, I have a class in coastal geology, I've been doing a long time. You know, there's overfishing, there's coral reefs, and there's climate change and water pollution and power plants. So um, I thought this is an issue that is global because most of my work has been California. I'm kind of <laughs> beat that pretty hard. So I thought it'd be fun to try to do a larger scale book that would appeal to more people in other places. I'm not sure because University of California Press is not really a marketing agent, they don't really do something that a big publisher might. I mean, they put out a catalog and then that's it. They do a wonderful job with the books. So um, I kind of started in on that and then I realized I needed some more perspective. So my wife and I took a wonderful two month trip. We spent 
a month driving around the coast of England and Scotland and a month around the coast of Spain and Portugal. And, you know, it was salmon farming and it was vessel farming and it was water quality and it was land use. So um, it came together really well. A lot of things I didn't normally work with, like invasive species, other things like power plants, because I've been involved, been involved with the California coast and then water quality. So the idea was that it would apply to more places and maybe provide fill a niche that I didn't think had been filled just because as we started our conversation, coasts have become become more aware of them and their issues. And I mean, sea level rise is one issue, but most of our power plants are on the coast. Our oil comes in, our ship traffic is where people are putting in their wastewater, but it's also a place of natural hazards with tsunamis, sea level rise, coastal storms. Um, and it's not I think I, when I just talked to the editor, they had sold a thousand copies, which is not really very many. It's been a little over a year. Um, but I think in, if one's realistic about writing a book in this area, it's really not to make money. So that book anyway was meant to be sort of global. And then Kim um, Steinhardt is an old friend. We walked around Monterey Bay together a couple mm -hmm. of times and he's uh, kind of retired and he's does a lot of photography of sea otters and give them a lot of talks on otters. And the photos in the book are incredible. Yeah, he's got a, a big lens and spends a lot of time in Moss Landing. And we had some things in common. He grew up on San Francisco Bay and Strawberry Point, uh, Strawberry Hill, Strawberry Hill, whatever it is. And he'd had a lot of interesting adventures and spent his time on the Pixar Coast. And I grew up in Southern California. We started talking and he actually proposed the idea. And I said, well, sure, let's give it a try. So he was working his part and I was working on my part and it came out at the same time. Um, and he's been really excited about going off and giving book talks. And I've, I've given some together, which is always interesting. Um, anyway, it's been a, a fun ride to just go off in a more personal direction. Um, and then my wife and I did a couple books together. The one on the California coast from the air. And mm -hmm. then the, I don't know whether you've seen it's the Now and Then. The, 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 yeah, Now yeah. and Then, right. Um, and that book is sold more than any because it's part of this Arcadia oh, yeah. series of old photographs. And uh, so many people love Then and Now images. Yeah. Um, and you'll see these articles in magazines that, you know, movie stars, what they look like in high school or whatever. And I thought of outlined another book called the faces of Santa Cruz then and now, you know, our political leaders and stuff. And what did they look like? And, and you know, a page about their life has nothing to do with science, but <laughs> the, the, the book on the photographs of the old coast is just a, such a vivid way to portray coastal change. I mean, we can say it's eroding at six inches per year. And what does that mean? But then you see, wow, there used to be something here that's in fact, as we said, you can't stand in some of the places where the photographs were taken from. In fact, there's this interesting photos in there um, out on Westcliff near Natural Bridges. There used to be a wave motor. So it was a wave motor. Well, it was a back in the late 1890s. There was a drought in Santa Cruz. And people used to go out along Westcliff Drive um, in wagons to to see the cliffs. It was the road of a thousand wonders. There was arches and bridges and, and blowholes. And when it got, we got in the drought, it was so dusty, people didn't want to go out there anymore. It was just too dirty. 
So the city said, well, we're losing tourism. So they hired these two brothers, the Armstrong brothers, to figure out how to solve this. And it turns out <laughs> there was a natural blowhole out there. And they, there was a cave and the wave surged in. Um, and they bored these two six-foot diameter holes into the top of that cave. And then they put these huge pistons in there. So the waves would surge in pretty engineeringly sharp for the 1890s, pushed the pistons up, I don't know, four, five, six feet. And when they came down, they pumped water into a derrick on top of the cliff. And then they used that water, gravity fed it into a, um, a water tank. And then they, there was a horse-drawn uh, wagon that they sprayed down Westcliff with so it wasn't dusty. So we had these old photographs taken from the top of that derrick wow. in 1890. And you can see up the coast where the Marine Lab is and the mobile home park. And then you can see uh, back into Santa Cruz, there was nothing there. So we said, well, how are we going to retake that photograph? And I started thinking, well, maybe I can get, I have a son-in-law who's a fire captain in Santa Cruz. I said, maybe get the fire truck out there and we'll get the ladder up. <laughs> no. And this is before drones. Which I was is thinking easy. that drawing would be the easy way now. So we talked to um, Ken and Gabriel Edelman, who did the Coastal Records Project photos, and we've been up with them flying a number of times. They've been very generous with their time. And they were excited about that book because they didn't know who'd use their photos and to see them in there. And so we made them sort of co-authors. So we came out in the helicopter. <laughs> we had cameras and we had the photo. We were trying to look at the photo and he just kept lowering it. Actually, it was Gabrielle. Oh, she does. I thought she was the pilot. She yeah. usually pilots. She's really careful. And Ken's yeah. got his you know, 35 megapixel mic on the <laughs> computer. And she just kind of kept lowering it down almost over the path out there. In fact, we ended up getting too low because the photos weren't quite right. So we found a way to get to photo, photo location that we couldn't get to before. But, but still it was, worth standing. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a fun book just because it was the photos that anybody could look at and understand and see wow, this is the old days, very different. I also think they make great tourist um, souvenirs. You go to Santa Cruz and you've got pictures of what it used to look like, you've got right. pictures of the way it is now. You can go back and look at it five years later and sort of remember your, your trip there and have great memories. And it's you know kind of nicer than buying cotton yeah. candy and yeah. a t-shirt. I think you're right. Um, Bob and I, important. yeah, Bob Wiggle and I got to know each other and he was never an email guy, but he'd write letters back and forth. And then he was retiring. He, he sent me all of his sand samples. So I have, well, oh, wow. these are just some of mine. Yeah. But I have I frames full of them. And he said, I, I want you to have these. And his daughters brought them down one day. He's got all these baby food jars with labels. of. But we had a lot of good conversations. And one of the things in the middle of something where I was trying to fix something, he said, I, I've used this time and time again, he says, Gary, for every complicated problem, there's always a simple answer, and it's always wrong. <laughs> yeah. So whenever somebody comes up and says, "Oh, I've, I figured yeah. out that deal," I know how to fix our beach problems. We just yeah. put a little cement there and hold the sand in place. Yeah. So he was a one of those wise, amazing amount of stuff. Um, I have his oral history, which yes. is kind of fascinating. And he, quite amazingly, never got a PhD. 
I know he had a master's degree, but he was full professor in you know, National Academy of Engineering, and just timing was such that it didn't well, matter. So you mentioned sand. I do not yet have, but I have on order Gary's Sand Journal. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a third grade. Okay. Fourth grade, fifth grade thing. Well, yeah. we'll see when I get it. Uh, what's your favorite sand? Uh, you know, I started collecting them, I think, in graduate school, and I think I now have three or four hundred. Some I put in frames, and then I found people, a handful of people go places that I haven't been in Antarctica, the Atacama Desert in Chile, and have sent it back. <laughs> oh, yes, the bottles. <laughs> people have sent me. Um, one of the favorites I have, because it's local, is the um, Garnet Sand uh at the mouth of Big Sur River, Malera State Park. Mm -hmm. You hike in, it's this beautiful beach, but it comes out of a garnet-bearing rock in the Big Sur River, and there's this beautiful, well, this is, can't show it on the podcast, but it's, and it's really heavy because garnet. Yeah. Um, so, and then over the years, I started, um, well, I have so many of oh, these. striations. So, so I started messing around, <laughs> and then I got my grandson, and he, he loves to do this, and so, anyway, um, and some of the, you know, some of the tropical ones are pretty exciting. Um, the pink coral sands of Bermuda. I spent a summer in Bermuda, which aren't really coral. They're foraminifera, but um, they really look different. And then there's Glass Beach, yes. Fort Bragg, which is kind of cool. Um, and a lot of the black sand, olivine. So mm -hmm. pretty amazing. And I didn't realize until I went online somewhere in my history of collecting sand that there's a whole group of people. They're called arenophiles after Aaronite sands. Okay. And they have their pictures of their sands and they collect them in different kind of bottles and photo micrographs of them and descriptions. So there's a whole army of people. Actually, my favorite beach material is cobble. Okay. I, I like sand, but I just think there's something magical and it's also musical walking across cobble. I love the noise it makes. It's pretty fun. I When I when I teach in this coastal geology class, I have I'm teaching about this quarter, and I, I asked them to kind of think about the unique sort of coincidence, the fact that most rocks, granite, so for sandstones, break down into sand-sized particles, ultimately, and waves are just capable of moving sand-sized particles. So by that sort of geological accident, we have this, you know, thousands of kilometer long sandy buffer around all of our many of our coastlines, I think, what if things broke down into baseball-sized clumps, grains? You know, think of how much more difficult it would be to jog on the beach, play volleyball, oh, yeah. walk on the beach. Yeah, cobble's not good for jogging. Okay. <laughs> but I know what you mean. That, but yeah. yeah. Well, I never thought about it that way. There's just nice sandy beaches everywhere. And it would build up more and more. Our coast would be expanding and extending yeah. because the waves couldn't move it away. Right. be very different. People probably wouldn't want to live right along the coast because there'd right. be these big rock piles out there. Yeah. So, what are you working on now? Uh, a couple of papers, actually. Um, Kiki Patch, who's mm -hmm. a graduate student who's well, now teaching at CSU Channel Islands, um, loves it there. She's really a great person. So, um, we've been uh, sort of collaborating on a couple things, and one, this whole idea of armoring and sort of what we've relied on for decades, mm -hmm. and for an engineer, that's what you work on. We've been working a lot with sea level rise, 
there's a conference in, at Columbia University in June. It's called At What Point Managed Retreat. And I think what a wonderful title because it just sort of puts it all out there. Uh, and you may know there's just been UC Irvine conference each year for the last three or four years. And I've been asked to be a speaker. Charles mm -hmm. and I have spoken together. And I suggested to them this year, why don't you make this on managed retreat? Because every year it's been some connection to coastal resilience, building resilient coastal communities. And I have this more realistic view that uh, we cannot build an organic natural shoreline along the outer California coast. We can't plant seagrass and mangroves and quarries. San Francisco Bay is different. Mm -hmm. It's marshes and wetlands. The open coast, kelp, algae doesn't matter. We got a lot of wave action. There's nothing we can plant on the bluffs as much as we would like to do that. So we've relied on armor, but I think that's an we're at the end of an era. But this idea of resilient communities, I think, is an easy way to sort of dismiss a really complicated thing with a word. Yeah. I, I joked when I started my last keynote talk in Irvine, I said, um, let's operationalize resilience as the dominant paradigm. <laughs> That's the kind of language <laughs> you hear from people. What Ooh. the hell does that mean? Yeah. Well, we're just going to, we're going to make it resilient. Well, show me a resilient coastal development. Uh, and I, on this trip we did, and I use it in the coast and crisis around the coast of England. I read earlier about a wonderful book written in 1912. It's called Lost Towns of the Yorkshire Coast. And they did an article in Toronto Beach. And it's, we have mobile homes, only they're not these 80 foot long, 40 feet wide. They're little caravans. You, you get the front row for two years and then you go to the back of the line. And I thought, we're never going to do that. What do you, I mean, if you were to be talking to your students today about communication, what skills would you tell them to focus on? Oh, gosh. Well, there's three books I really like that I have read. One's by um, uh, Randy Olson, Don't Be Such a Scientist. All right. He's a marine biologist who went to film school and he discovered he wasn't having enough impact as a young assistant professor. And he makes a lot of really good points about what he calls um, ABT which stands for and but therefore, and it's it's a narrative. He says, most scientists go to a conference and they say, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and here's my conclusions. It's sort of boring. And he says, you have to make it a story. Sea level's rising, and it's rising at a much higher level than it used to, but we built next to the coast, therefore we got to do something about it. So it's this ABT. And then there's the one by um, Nancy Barron down from the Ivory Tower. She's at Stanford, helped mm -hmm. develop Compass. So it's how do you communicate with the media, um, newspapers, and then the one by um, Corey Dean, who's a science writer oh, yes. from the New York Times. And I think hers is, am I making myself clear? And so those are ones I talk to my students about. So just in closing, where is your favorite beach? Gosh, Leslie, that's really tough. You don't have to tell your favorite <laughs> secret beach, your favorite public beach. Oh, well, beaches have gotten pretty crowded in places. I, I think of more places around the world where I've been. Um, I spent a week on a boat with a guy who has a big boat in the Bahamas. <laughs> 
And there there's these little marinas where people will pull in in their boats and uh, they anchor there and they go out to the bar and you could walk down a beach that's two miles long. It's just beautiful, crystal white coral sand, the water's warm. There's stromatolites out there, precambian reef sort of, and nobody on the beach. And that was pretty special. I have it's pretty to say. privileged. Pretty privileged. Um, Santa Cruz, you know, I mean, in the middle of the bay, we've hiked around the bay. I've led people around the bay this 35 mile walk, six times. And there's some places you get to down there, south of Manresa, into the bay where there's nobody on the beach. It tends to be a little windier, a little um, less populated. Mm -hmm. You know, the main beach in Santa Cruz, Cowell Beach, are great. Um, I used to surf a lot of the four mile beach up the coast, Yellow Bank. It's got these incredible sandstone intrusions, but. You know, various members of society choose to come there and try to mess it up, and yet it's hard to find a place beach now that hasn't been impacted. Yeah, so that's your yeah criteria for favorite beach. Yeah, places where you don't have to deal with a thousand other people. And you know, we were you know on the beaches of Portugal and Spain and England and Scotland. The water's cold, but there's nobody there. We had a great time in Iceland, which has these. Very few people on these isolated, rocky, icy beaches with icebergs on them. And that was kind of unique. So, anyway, difficult decision. <laughs> so, thank you so much. Gary. Oh yeah, this was fun. Thanks, Leslie. So, and also thank you for listening and to this inaugural, inaugural with Gary Griggs <laughs> issue of Shorebirds. I hope the time with Dr. Gary Gary B. Griggs as he signs off for all of his Shore Beach articles. It's been both taught you something about California coast, about writing, and about Gary's life. I also hope that it's inspired you to read some of his books. That Coast in Crisis, there are only a thousand books sold so far. We can go, we can help that with a little <laughs> bit, let's hope. But also some of his articles and pick up another coastal book, if not his, and dive into the Shorebirds experience. I hope to be back next month with another issue of Shorewords, so stay tuned. Thank you.